Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you've not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with him, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, 
We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Thank you, Kelsey. Good morning, everyone. Great to see you here. For those who are new, I've been away on holidays. And uh, can I just get you to put your hands together for Scott, who's been doing a fantastic job running the place. Thank you, Scotty. Great blessing having he and his family here. Let's pray as we come and look at God's word this morning. Father, we do thank you that we can be here this morning and I pray that your word would be alive in our hearts. Father, it would transform us. And Father, particularly as we look at this incredible story of this woman who met Jesus, may we be people who have our our hearts filled with your spirit so that we worship you in spirit and truth. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you have heard someone recently say these words, but they're very powerful words of testimony. He changed my life. And those words have been echoed through history, through people across every continent, every age, every nation, every tribe. He changed my life. Now you know the he who we're talking about is the Lord Jesus. And that is the most powerful testimony you will hear from people who have met Christ, the Lord Jesus. And it's the testimony of someone who has come face to face with the living God in his son and have responded to him. He changed my life. And today we're looking at a very, very well-known, well-loved chapter of the Bible. It's John chapter 4. And in many ways, while those words aren't particularly on the woman's lips, they epitomised what happened that day in Samaria at a well when she stood and she talked and she met the Lord Jesus Christ because she would go on to speak in a way that said he changed my life. And when you get to this chapter of John's Gospel, um, the clue as to what John is wanting to tell us is at the end. And it's in verse 42. And I know when you're watching a thriller, you don't want to see the end of the movie uh, because you want to see what happens. Uh, But it's okay if I can say today, uh, we've had it read to us. And I've got that verse on the screen in front of us. If you've got your Bibles there, do open up. We're at page 1065. And the Samaritan people who knew this woman, and we're going to look at who she was in relationship to her community, said this, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. And you see, she had gone and along with countless people through all history proclaimed, he changed my life. And what John wants to tell us is this person, the Lord Jesus Christ, is not just the saviour of the Jews, he's actually the saviour of the world. And if you've been with us on the journey so far in John's gospel, you've met a Jesus who... John introduced as being God in the flesh with us here dwelling. And if you want to know who God is, look to this person that they call Jesus. And he's gone and turned water into wine in that famous first miracle in John's gospel. He's gone and cleared the temple out. 
and you can see his outrage at what religion had become amongst his Jewish people. He's had a nighttime conversation with one of the leaders of the Jewish people, Nicodemus, and really confused him as he turned everything upside down in his head as what it meant to be entering the kingdom of God. And then John's explained about what it means to enter the kingdom of God for whoever believes will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And now we come to a fascinating twist in the story because at this point only do we see a Jesus who cares for his own people. But what we see here is that the scope of his love and the depth of what he will do is not to be limited just to this small group of people within Israel. But in fact, he wants to be the one, he is the one who will actually save the world. Now, when we meet him at the start of this chapter, um, he's the most unlikely saviour. But before we think about what this chapter does, I want to ask you a question. Um, When you think of salvation, because that's what this chapter is about, him being the saviour of the world, um, what comes to mind for you? Because I wonder if for many of us, we can think salvation is a bit like buying life insurance. And what I mean by that is this. Um, it's good to have life insurance. In fact, you wouldn't want to live without it. Let me say I'm a beneficiary of that in my own life. As many of you know, my dad died very young. And there was life insurance that was of enormous assistance to our family uh, because of a work-related incident where he died on the road, travelling between jobs in what he was doing as a doctor. And so we have life insurance. Every year I find out what my insurance is as a minister and we have a, if I can say, a system we're involved in. There's a death benefit. I hope I don't have to use it. But you're comforted by the fact that it's there in case something dreadful happens to me and the family will be looked after. But the thing about life insurance is you kind of know it's kind of like an insurance policy because that's what it is in case something bad happens. But it doesn't change your life, does it? I don't live any differently at one level because I've got life insurance. Now, I suspect most of us have life insurance, don't we? In some way. Now, if you don't, it's a good thing to have. But I'm not here today to be a life insurance salesman. And I wonder if people think salvation is a bit like life insurance. You know, Jesus... I don't know if I love him. I hear people talk about that. But it's good to have him as my saviour. For if and when I die. Because you really do want to have fire insurance against hell, don't you? And it's nice to kind of know that Jesus died for me, but it really hasn't changed my life. But I'm glad I've got him for when the end comes. But he hasn't changed my life. I wonder if that's your view of salvation. Let's have a look at what we find in this chapter. Jesus is an unlikely saviour. It's worth noting that. And we meet Jesus on the road to Samaria. His disciples have been baptising, verses 1 and 2, and he leaves Judea, verse 3, and heads back to Galilee. And there were two ways that you could travel from Judah, Judea up to Galilee. It's a trip from south to north. And bang smack in the middle is this place called Samaria, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. But typically Jews who were, if I can say, very pious would not go through the country, they would go around the country. It would take almost twice as long. 
But Jesus is not worried about the, um, the way that the Jewish people thought, their prejudices against the Samaritan people, and he just walks straight up. And he gets to Samaria. Now, it's a trip of about 100 kilometres. Now, I remember when I first moved up here, I went back to Wollongong, which is where I'd come from, and that was exactly 100 uh, kilometres on the trip meter to go home. And so the trip that he has been on is roughly like walking from here in Manly <clears throat> across a couple of bridges, three in fact, all the way down to Wollongong. It would take you a couple of days. And when Jesus arrives, it's midday, probably on the third day, He's hot, he's sweaty, he's tired, he's thirsty and he sits down and meets this woman at the well. And I want to say there's something incredibly normal about this Jesus. And when this Samaritan woman meets him at the well at midday, he's not, she's not going, oh great, he's the saviour of the world. She just thinks, who is this Jewish guy and what's he doing talking to me? And I want to say to us here, if you're not familiar with the Lord Jesus, he is someone that people often just see and walk past, if I can say figuratively, because there's something quite normal about him. But you actually need to stop and look at who he really is. He actually is the saviour of the world. And what he came to do was to save and transform people. And I put these two words together because, you see, to be saved is to be in right relationship with God. But it actually means being transformed completely. The way he saves is by transforming us. He takes us as we are, but he never leaves us where we are. And on this day, he meets this firstly, if I can say, Samaritan person. And the race of the Samaritans, well, they were regarded by the Jews as hated and heretics. It's not the nicest thing to be, but that's how they viewed them. There was a great prejudice against them. In fact, they didn't like anyone who was not Jewish. Typically, they hated these people even more because they were kind of like a mixed race of people who'd once been Jewish, they're now not They'd mingled their kind of pure religion with pagan idolatrous practices. They'd even set up a temple in competition with Jerusalem at a place called Mount Gerizim, close by to where Jesus was talking to this woman. And so the Samaritan woman is very surprised that Jesus, the Jewish man, actually stops and talks to her. Because typically they wouldn't even just stop and talk, they would go all the way around so they wouldn't even go in the country. But he's not just talking to a Samaritan, he's talking to a Samaritan woman, a woman. And it's incredible the way Jesus overlapped the barriers of the day. He was esteemed as a rabbi. Now, this is a shocking quote I'm going to read to you, but it's by one of the well-known rabbis of the day, and he said this. It's better to burn the law than to give it to a woman. Now, I, I, I don't want to in any way endorse that. Women, take up your Bibles, use them, read them, Okay. But that was the prejudice, not just against Samaritans, but against women. And Jesus comes, and it's worth noting this, has his longest and most in-depth recorded conversation in all of the Gospels with who? A woman. The one that rabbis would not even give the law to. And she's not just any woman, is she? You've heard the reading tonight, today. 
Jesus is talking with a sinful and broken Samaritan woman. And there's something very confronting listening to this conversation. And I'm sure you've sat with people who are like this, who have just been through the treadmill of life and they've come out the other end and they're just broken and destroyed by life. That's what we're talking about here. I'll read from verse 10 the dialogue that ensued. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, well, you would have asked him and he would have given you the living water. You see, Jesus stopped and asked for a drink. The woman said, Well, actually, you've got nothing to draw with and the well is deep. It was probably 100 feet deep, maybe 20, 30 meters. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus responded, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. And that's the reality of water. We are quenched by it, but then the next day we need it again. I don't know if you know this truth biologically. I understand that the human body, I'm not a biologist or doctor, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I understand from my research that we are roughly 55 to 60% made up of water. Different parts of the body have different percentages. The lowest part are our bones. I think the highest part is in the brain. Um, But 55 to 60% on average is what our human body is made up. And because of that, we absolutely need water. You can live without food for many days. You cannot live without water. Whoever drinks of this water will be thirsty again. We need water desperately. But Jesus says, whoever drinks the water I will give them, well, they will never thirst. It's an incredibly profound claim. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, and I mean, you can understand why, sir, can you give me this water? Imagine if I came and offered you, I'm going to give you some water that you'll never be thirsty again. And it's going to well up to eternal life. I mean, there'll be a queue out the door, won't there? And this woman who is broken, as we shall see, just says, well, could I have some of that? And then Jesus looks at her and he says, why don't you go and call your husband and come back? Now, he's kind of cheeky, isn't it? Because he knows the reality of what's in her life and what's taken place. And with great honesty, she doesn't deflect from the question, I have no husband. And you can almost see her face drop. And I suspect, and I don't know, but I I suspect that in the conversation when the question is asked, and before there's been eye contact, you can just imagine that the eyes drop out of shame, out of guilt. I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. In fact, you've had five husbands. And the man you're now with is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. This is a broken woman that we're looking at. And I was thinking about it. To have five husbands is kind of ridiculous at one level. I don't want to say much because I don't want to... Relive pain for those who've been through broken relationships. Some people have exceeded her 
typically from Hollywood, Lana Turner, Mickey Rooney, Zaza Gabor, Elizabeth Taylor, Georgia Holt have this in common, eight marriages. But they don't come close to the world record, it's 23. One lady started when she was 16, finished when she was 68. She said, I was addicted to the romance of it. You think, yeah, but you could kind of have romance just with one of them. I like having romance with my wife. (laughs) That's why I call her my girlfriend. (laughs) But she's not just broken, she's sinful. And I don't mean that to dig the knife in here, but just to recognise that it's not just despair that's in this woman's life, there's a rebellion that's there as well, which if I can say all of us have, but unlike this lady, our sin is not on public display like it is for this woman. And I don't mention it to condemn her, I don't think Jesus did to condemn her, but rather to get to the heart of her issues and the heart of her deep thirst. But I want to stop and just reflect on the fact that Jesus is having this conversation with this woman. And it's the longest recorded conversation in all the Gospels. And it does tell you something very profound about the Lord Jesus. That in a culture where Samaritans were despised, women were looked down on, and sinners were treated as those who were undeserving... Jesus comes to that person, which tells you profoundly that he is not just for the religious people who he's just engaged with, which was Nicodemus in chapter 3. He's actually for everyone. And I don't mean that in the sense that he will save everyone, but his love is for the world. And there is no one here, and I don't even know your life stories, I don't have to know them because what this is showing is there is no one who is too far, too broken, too sinful, too looked down upon to be outside the realm of the love and the grace and the forgiveness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you've come here today and wondered, is there a God who could love me? Well, this story tells you yes. And you'll find that God in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. But the thing that takes place is quite remarkable. And this is where the transformation and salvation go hand in hand together. You see, what Jesus has done in this conversation is uncover the deep need that is in her life. You've got to ask the question, why do you remarry five times? There's a point where you go, that hasn't worked. (laughs) And it's because there's a deeper need inside of her that just has not been met but keeps driving her and driving her the sense of search for meaning. And I I think of this woman of acceptance and love. And it didn't work with him and it didn't work with him. And well, or maybe this one, well, actually that didn't. And maybe, and she's just kept going on till the sixth. And she thinks, well, she doesn't get married in the end. She just lives with him. And it's driven by something very deep inside to find a sense of meaning and acceptance and love, which I want to say to you, you will never find in this world apart from God. And the metaphor of water and thirst 
is very deliberate here because like our bodies that continue to need to be replenished with water, so is our hunger and thirst internally and spiritually and existentially. That we seek something greater than ourselves and we will seek to fill that in all sorts of ways. It's called idolatry where we'll take things that are good in this world and we'll make them ultimate things, seeking to find ultimate meaning and purpose from them. For this woman, it was in relationships, but for others, it may be through work that you seek to use work to find a sense of ultimate meaning by making a name or being rich or whatever, having power. It can be through family that our families can become ultimate. And through that, we find our ultimate meaning and purpose in life, but families disappoint us, families break up. They'll never provide the ultimate meaning that can only be found in knowing and serving Christ and following the living God himself. You know something is an idol because your life falls apart when it's taken away. And you'll see that in relationships, and I've seen it numbers of times, where the relationship has fallen apart and the person says these words, my life is over. And you see, what they're reflecting on is that what has been ultimate in their life is now gone. Now, what's interesting in this conversation, the topic moves to worship which is very helpful because you see what Jesus has been drilling down on is really what does this woman worship? What is ultimate? Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet and she changes the topic. And I can understand why because the conversation became very uncomfortable as the revelation of her past life has come out. Verse 20, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain but you Jews claim that the space where we must worship is in Jerusalem. It's a nice technical kind of theological question. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, A time is coming when you'll worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman looked at Jesus and she utters these words, I know that Messiah is coming, called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Now it's interesting, there's a particular word used there on two occasions, a time is coming. In older translations, it's probably better translated, the hour is coming. And I make note of that because it's a theme in John's gospel. And Jesus will keep saying, there's an hour is coming. Or he'll say, the hour has not yet come. Until finally, the whole gospel turns at John chapter 12. And he says, the hour has come. And the hour is the hour, it's the time of his death. And what he's saying here is there's a time, there's an hour that will come. When you will neither worship on this mountain or that mountain, you worship what you don't know, we worship what you don't know, end of the day, it doesn't matter. It's not about geography in the end because what's coming is a new way of worship. And it's going to be in the Spirit, by the Spirit, and in truth. And it's actually going to change the whole way we approach God. And that hour 
is the hour of his death and the resurrection. And you see, at that moment and in that event of his death and resurrection, a whole new way of relating to God was opened up. And the outworking of that was God, through his son, the Lord Jesus, would pour his spirit into our hearts as we accept him by faith. And we would no longer worship because we have to, but because we want to. Because we have been saved and transformed from the inside out. And as you go through John, he will talk about how there's a day coming when the Spirit will be poured out and will flow rivers of living water from within you. And what he is highlighting and predicting and saying is about to come is this incredible time. We will no longer have to worship in a building, on a mountain, in a place. You can worship God wherever because it will be by the Spirit who will be poured into your life. And that Spirit will transform you and you will worship in truth according to the Lord Jesus Christ who is the truth. And this woman is touched and changed. You see, the living water that Jesus Christ promises is the love, the peace, the joy the presence of God himself in our life. It satisfies our deepest desires. It transforms us so that we worship God from the heart. And we are saved by his death and resurrection. We are forgiven. And our life is never the same. And what we thought were ultimate things actually we realize are just good things. And that what is actually ultimate is knowing God and serving him. And if you really experience the grace of God in your life, it's like drinking fresh cold water when you've been out walking in the hot midday sun and you're sweating and you're tired and your thirst is parched and you go in and get a glass of water out of the fridge and it's cold and you just think, I've drunk it, I want more and I want more and I want more. One sip is never enough. And that's what it's like with the grace of God and experiencing the living water that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ by his spirit. We want more, we want more, we want more of his love and grace and truth in our life and forgiveness. And what happens? You see it in verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And you can imagine it would have been the most rich two days of conversation and discovery about what it meant to know God. And because of his words, that's the Lord Jesus, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. He changed my life. And you see, those words come from a person who's met the living Christ and have drunk the living water that flows from him by his spirit. I remember meeting Debbie in about the first year of my ministry as an ordained minister down in Wollongong. She'd come to church once. Her background was that she had no experience of the Christian faith. And in fact, there was great shame in her life She'd grown up in a very nice family. Father was a vice-chancellor at the university. And she'd had some very rebellious years. 
and alcohol was a big issue. She'd spent much time on the streets. In fact, enough time that she was photographed or videoed by Win TV, the local TV station. And whenever they would run a story, which happened regularly, about teenage alcoholism and issues in the region, they had a particular footage that was stored in the archives that they would just bring out every time. And it was her. And she said it was like a Groundhog Day living memory of my shame and guilt being displayed to all of the region. Because every time the story on teenage alcoholism would come up, there was Debbie looking at herself on the screen. I sat down the second week that she came to church and I said, has anyone ever explained the Christian faith to you? She said, no, would you like to find out? She said, yes. And I remember going through and explaining about what the Christian faith was. And we got to a point where I said, do you know God loves you? And she just kind of looked at me and you could see tears were wearing up, welling up in her eyes. And I said to her, Debbie, you know God can forgive you everything you've done. And at that point, it was too much. She just started crying. And she looked at me and said, I can't even forgive myself for what I've done. Are you telling me that God can forgive me? And I said, yes, Debbie. And we prayed right there and then, a few minutes later, and she gave her life to Christ. And her life was never the same. And you see, that's the power of this story. It's for every Debbie. It's for every Brian. It's for every Mary. It's for every Andrew. It's for every person who wonders and is searching in life. Is there a God who loves me? And the answer is yes. And the fascinating thing is with Nicodemus, you can see he's wrestling with big things of theology and who this Jesus is, and he goes away puzzled. And he finally makes it, you find out, by John chapter 20, 21, and he's there with Josephus actually helping Jesus' body being put in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. But it's a whole journey he goes on, and my journey is like that. But for others, they realize this is the one who offers water of eternal life, living water. And like a thirsty person who's come in from the hot midday sun, they just want to drink. And I just want to ask this morning, is that you? Do you know the living water that flows from the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you come to him and given him your life wholly and totally? And has he filled you with his spirit? Because that's what he wants to do for us. He wants us to come to him and worship him alone. And finding a meaning and purpose in him alone. He wants to forgive us our sins for all the wrong ways we've sought to find meaning and purpose in this life. And the way we've screwed our life up. And he wants to make us a new person in Christ. And I want to stop just now and finish the sermon by inviting people if they'd like to pray. I mean one application from this is go out and tell the good news if you have received that living water in your life because that's what you see this woman do and I'd encourage you go and tell the good news to as many as you can. We need to keep being people who are overflowing with the life of God. But I wonder this morning for those who are here who needs to receive that living water themselves.
to experience the reality of God's love, peace, strength, joy, forgiveness and presence with them. Let's bow our heads and pray. And I'd like to pray for people. I'd like people to respond. And I wonder this morning as you're sitting here, who would say, that's me? I need Jesus. I need to be forgiven. I need to come to him and receive life from him. And if that's you this morning, I just want you to put your hand up in the air because I want to pray for you. God bless you. God bless you. Just holding your hand up. Does anyone else? Just put your hand up. Let me pray for you. God bless you. Heavenly Father, for these people this morning who've just acknowledged their need of you, perhaps Jesus has just been like the life insurance we store in the filing cabinet in the past. They know that they've been searching for meaning and purpose in all the wrong places. Father, I pray that you would come into their life this day. Help them to confess that you are now their Lord and Saviour and I pray fill them with your spirit. Fill them with your love and grace and forgiveness that was won at the cross. And I pray that they would be a different person today having tasted of the living water that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ by his spirit. We pray this in his name. Amen. For those